Hey, everybody, if you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical, digital, or service products. Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com stuff right now and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code stuff and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hi, folks. This is Chuck here. Welcome to the Saturday Selects edition of Stuff You Should Know. Uh, This week, I am picking out the cheesiest SYSK episode ever from August 25th, 2011. Uh, And this is not a show about um, bad music. But this is a show about cheese. Um, I love cheese. Josh loves cheese. A lot of people love cheese. And this ended up being a very dense, probably could have been a two-parter, but a really cool episode about the history of cheese and how it's made and just the varieties of cheese. Like, you could have an entire uh, 14-part series on cheese, but um, as we do, we decided to cram as much as we could into one episode. So pour up some wine, cut some cheese... Uh, metaphorically, actually not metaphorically, and uh, enjoy this episode. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. So funny, Chuck (laughs) Bryant. Is that a new nickname? So funny, Chuck. Mm-hmm. My wife would beg to differ. She might say I'm not so funny sometimes. No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Chuck. Yes. How you doing? I'm great. Um, I've got an intro this time. Awesome. How long has it been? Uh, I don't know. It's been a while. Really? Yeah. Since we've had a proper intro? Yes. Okay. If you ask me. So, um, let me paint the picture for you. All right. Uh, in May of 2010... A little newspaper called The Telegraph, I believe out of London, yeah. published a, an article about a recent survey of 4,000 consumers, British consumers, um, of what were the top 100 most important inventions ever created by man. Okay. So some of them were not surprising. The wheel came in first place, right? Beer. Beer is on there, and it came in, was it on there? I don't sure. know. I can tell you painkillers were on there in 13th place, <laughs> 15th place. Um, but no, man, I didn't see beer on here, and surely it is. Maybe that was just they don't consider that an invention. Sliced bread um, came in, in 70th place. Um, the iPhone came in 8th uh, place. What? Ahead of the combustion engine. <laughs> That's ridiculous. In uh, 87th place came calendars. Okay. But then right after that. In 88th place 
came the cheese grater. Hmm. Yeah. The grater. The cheese grater. It, that makes me think. So first of all, this is clearly one of the dumbest assemblages of 4,000 <laughs> people ever put together. Calendar and then cheese grater. And then iPhone number yeah. eight. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think that possibly, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, and that they didn't assume that cheese was invented by humans. The cheese grater was clearly invented by humans. You don't find them growing on trees. Yeah. Cheese, apparently, you find growing on trees. It's a gift from God. Right. But I think had, had the pollsters said, you know, I just want to remind you here that cheese is an invention. It that is. It would, it would have scored higher, at least 88. It, it, it would have at least replaced the cheese grater. Oh, yeah. I would... No, England, I don't know how they are on cheese, but the EU is real big on cheese. It is. As a whole. So is Wisconsin. Yeah. So is, um, well, yeah, the EU. Yeah. Yeah. New York. I think uh, Germany and... uh, It's in the EU. France. Greece. Denmark. Belgium. They're all like in the top 10. Yes. Greece is way ahead, of course. And, and, well, Greece comes up in some stats that are coming right after this. But, Chuck, um, cheese is an invention and, as legend goes, an accidental invention, right? Yeah, I mean, they. I've seen it dated back to prehistory, so they can't obviously trace it back to 6,000 BC and say how it happened, right? Well, they can say that it was it, it was around at least as late as um, 3,200 BC uh, because it's, right. it was found in the um, tomb of one of the Egyptian pharaohs. Cheese, mm-hmm. five thousand year old cheese. Yeah, which wow. Um, and uh, the idea goes, the legend goes, that there was some um, shepherd, some goat herder, some cow herder, which I guess you'd call a rancher, uh-huh. um, went to, I guess, go tend to his flock, and he had his daily milk, and he used a cow skin, um, or a cow stomach, mm-hmm. a calf stomach specifically, to store the milk, and when he went to go drink it, it came out all curdled and smacked his face, and he said, what is going on here? He told some people about it, and it took root. Now, see, I read that Roquefort was invented by accident by a shepherd. Yes, I read that too. And he was he stashed his lunch in a cave because he saw a young maiden that he wanted to go get down with, and he forgot about his lunch and came back like a couple weeks later, and it was moldy, Yeah, and he ate it anyway, and it was like, hey, this is pretty tasty. Yeah, he's like, I like this a lot. So that makes me think these tales might be just intermingling some. Well, they are tales. There's nothing, you know, sure. specific, nothing documented. It's fun. But Roquefort um, also supposedly is from, it dates to about the time of Christ. So if cheese was known to the Egyptians in 3200 BC, and it would have come before that. But it's possible they were invented independently, accidentally, right? That's true. There are a lot of shepherds running around at that time, a lot more than these days. That's true. And Roquefort is also a PDO, which is a protected designation of origin cheese. That's true, man. Which means uh, it's got to be made in uh, Roquefort sur Solzon. Right. And the, specifically this uh, mountain range, this sh- small area yeah. of mountaintop. Got to get the sheep from there. In France. Got to yeah. age it in the caves there. Yep. Or you're not eating Roquefort. And still to this day, speaking of uh, how Roquefort is produced, these these shepherds that still kind of dress like they used to um, during medieval like times, li- like little Bo Peep, kind of. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, but they all have beards. It's really kind of disturbing to go wow. to go to this area. Um, they uh, the families make the cheese from their own flocks' milk and then take it to um, the caves. 
where they're where it's purchased by affineurs, which uh-huh. are expert finishers of cheese in France. Which means they just sit around and look at it. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Come on, hurry up! The cheese is done." So that's that's just a brief sketch of cheese history, right? Yeah, and that's the most interesting stuff I I would think. All right, well that's the podcast. All right, <laughs> well let's talk let's talk cheese, man. You know these stats are interesting. Uh, yeah, in two thousand nine, the average American consumed, or the Americans consumed an average, depending on which way you want to look at it, mm-hmm. of 32.9 pounds a couple of years ago per person per year. So, say, say that one more time. 32.9 pounds. Let's just call it 33 pounds of cheese per person per year. I love cheese, but I don't think I eat that much. I had no idea I was eating that much cheese. I might be, though, dude. I love cheese. I'm going to start paying attention. I'm going to do a, a yearly cheese count. <sighs> also, this, um, what was it, like 33 pounds uh, per American per year of cheese. Yeah, give right? or take a few ounces. That's part of 82 billion pounds of cheese that America alone produces, or produced, I should say, in 2008. And get this. 82 billion? 82 billion I pounds. I got like eight different stats on that. Yeah, there's a lot of different stats out there. It's true. I got from 9 billion down to 10.1 million. So I got 82 I even... billion. <laughs> wow, we're all over the place with that one. I suddenly am like really... <laughs> Huh. Uh, well, okay. Uh, this is from like a cheese board. Okay. Probably Wisconsin. It probably would have been like the Delaware cheese board. I'm right. not listening to this. Um, but uh, in 1975, we ate 14 pounds of cheese a person. So we've doubled our cheese intake yeah. since 75. That's really something. What year were you born? 76. Eh, might have something to do with uh, it. <laughs> huh. I knew I was destined for something. But the, the Greeks do. are up to close to 60 pounds a year. Yeah, the Greeks and the French apparently score between 53 to 73 pounds on average per person. The Greeks and the French are tied as the world's greatest consumers of cheese. It's a lot of feta. That is. And feta is probably the oldest cheese, by the way, speaking of cheese history. It's also one of the simplest. Yeah. I love crumbly, delicious feta. Right. Feta... If you went to Greece and made and grabbed some feta that some Greek shepherd farmer had just made, and you brought it back to the U.S., they would slap the cuffs on you. The FDA would. Oh, because it's uh, the aging laws we have here are different. Yeah, it's a raw milk cheese. Yeah, and which means it's made from it's a fresh kind of cheese made from unpasteurized milk. And um, in the U.S., if you make that kind of cheese, if you make cheese using pasteurized milk, yeah. Um, you have to age it 60 days at least. Unpasteurized milk. Unpasteurized milk. Yeah. So this is just this, like, we just stepped into this fascinating <laughs> world, if you ask me. Yeah, pasteurization, just quickly, is, uh, most people know is when you take food, usually a liquid, though, and you heat it up really hot for a specific amount of time at a specific temperature, then you cool it down real quickly. Mm-hmm. And the goal there is to slow down microbial growth, but not stop it. Right. Because that would be sterilization. Huh. And not pasteurization. Right. Named after the great Louis Pasteur. Yeah. And if you, you don't want to sterilize it because that, that ruins the flavor. So that's, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> sterilized milk. Sterilized cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. It's not good stuff. But um, not only is pasteurization good for your health, most would say. Yeah. Uh, while cheese kind of serves like the hardcore kind that have like mohawks with like Elmer's glue. Right. Sure. They will tell you um, that the only good cheese comes from cheese made from unpasteurized milk. Yeah, raw milk cheese. Yeah. But other people will tell you 
you're not really right. We can make really good cheese with pasteurized milk, and pasteurized milk makes for a, an easier cheese-making process. It's more reliable. It's more predictable. Yeah, and when you're making tons, metric tons of cheese, you want the, something consistent like that. Right. All right. What a wham-bang start. Why do you talk about milk all the time with cheese, Josh? Well, because cheese <laughs> is really just a portable form of milk. Yeah. You know, it's it's basically it's like um, grain uh, represents um, uh, virtual water. Sure. You ship grain from one place to another. You're really shipping the water that was used to produce the grain in addition to it. Yeah, I remember seeing those commercials. Like, I think it was Kraft. Like, there are two cups of milk in every slice of Kraft <laughs> American cheese, and I always thought that's impossible. Yeah. Look at it, that little slice of cheese, and look at two cups of milk. There's no way. You're probably right, though. No, they can't say that. They're the it's like the second biggest food company on the planet. I think, yeah, I think they, they can do whatever they want. That, yeah. <laughs> so you're right, Josh. Buy and sell you and me. <laughs> milk, uh, cheese is nothing but milk. Uh, milk is about 80% water. If you remove this water, mm-hmm. you got cheese, basically. Yeah. It's a little more complicated than that, but. It's not that much more complicated. No, no, no. I was really surprised. Like, both of us apparently went our own way and um, learned how to make cheese. And I have to say, like, I am strongly considering getting. Me and Yumi into cheese making. You can make mozzarella pretty easily. Yeah, but I'm not big. I, I'm okay on mozzarella. I like a good mozzarella. Yeah. But more I'm into like the, the slightly stinkier cheeses. I don't know if you can pull off making like a Limburger. Well, I wouldn't make that, but I could make like a Gouda um, or a uh, Chevre. Chevre. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I like that too. Speaking of Limburger, quickly, I don't remember the name of the bacteria, but the the bacteria used in making Limburger is the same one on our body that creates body odor, which is why it stinks. I, I read that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's why people say it smells like feet, <laughs> because right. it does. Yes. And scientifically speaking, you're absolutely right. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Types of cheese? Should we break that down real quick? Yes, we should, because there's a big... 
con- contentious debate about how you classify cheese. And uh, this guy, Stephen Jenkins, for this article, seems to have a pretty good handle on how cheese should be classified. Josh, he's a member of the Confrérie des Chevaliers <laughs> du Test de Fromage. Very nice. Thank you. Very nice. Which I was looking at that like, I wonder if I'm going to have to handle that one. <laughs> it's uh, cheese connoisseurs, and he's an expert, and he says you can break them down into fresh, soft-ripened, wash-rind, natural-rind, blue-veined, uncooked pressed, cooked pressed, and processed. And Chuck, um, like like we were talking about already, um, the fresh cheeses, those are the easiest, the most basic, the most ancient kind. You've got your feta, you have a queso fresco, uh, mascarpone, right? Not mascarpone. Yeah. The R goes after the S, so it's mascarpone. I wonder why that is always mispronounced. I have no idea. Cause I, I think, thought it was mascarpone until I read it, and I was like, huh. That rolls off the tongue, though, more than the, the R's... Rolls off the tongue more than the zzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
um, you know. But you can't have a cocktail party without cheese. Exactly. (laughs) So there you go. That's where Uh, that comes from. Natural rind, moving on, is uh, heavier than most of other types of cheeses. Uh, It's aged, usually, because not all cheese is aged. Uh, A lot of them are made from raw milk. And again, English Stilton and Chevre are natural rind cheeses. That's when the rind forms naturally. Yes. Correct? Yes. Okay. So rind, I guess I should correct myself. The stinky ones almost always have some sort of bacterial-induced rind, whether it's hastened along by washing or it just happens naturally. Right. If you got a rind, usually going. If you have a moldy rind, you're going to have a stinkier cheese. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, and then where are we, Chuck? Blue veined. Blue veined. That's Roquefort, Gorgonzola, Maytag Blue. It's um. These exactly are my favorites, it, by the way. Do you like these? I love blue cheese. Love love blue vein cheese. Yeah. So you can eat it all day long. It's exactly what it sounds like. Everybody's seen it. You know, you get a hunk of this and it's just like crumbly and it mm, looks deteriorated. So good. But that, that blue or the green, the veins in it oh, is yeah. mold. Yeah. Pretty, pretty healthy, active, live mold too. Very tart. Like that, that's one of the cheeses that makes my jaw just go. <laughs> Do you eat it as a <laughs> dessert cheese? Uh, no, I don't do a ton of dessert cheeses. Yeah. Sometimes if I'm at, you know, a restaurant that has a nice dessert cheese menu. But I I just, uh, you know, I like the cheese and wine thing. We'll get to that, though. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and then lastly, well, third to lastly, we've got um, the pressed cheeses, cooked and uncooked, right? So uncooked cheese is cheddar cheese. Good old cheddar. Just that orange block of cheese um, is uncooked, and cheddar is actually the name of a process of making cheese. Cheddaring is uh, taking the curds and just pressing them down on top of one another until you squeeze all the way out. Yeah, and these all, all these pressed cheeses are really dry because you're just getting you're pressing the way out, like you said, and that's the liquid. So right. it's going to be much drier, like your hard uh, Parmigiano Reggiano cheddar. Yeah, and, what else? and also, um, as a side note, cheese, orange cheese, like orange cheddar. Yeah. You know how it's like brilliantly orange sometimes? And you're like, that can't possibly be a real orange. What's going on there? It's not. Apparently, back <laughs> in the day, uh, in the spring and summer. This is the fact of the show for me. Is it? I think so. I would say the 33 pounds per person. Of That's the gross consumed. fact of the show. But if you want to. Celebrate cheese at a cocktail party. Just say what Josh is about to say. I, I think you should take this. No, thing. I think you should. Okay. Um, back in the day, if you had your flock out of sheep or goats or cows and it was spring or summer, they were chewing grass. When they ate grass, they were ingesting a lot of beta carotene, right? And vitamin D. Yeah. Okay. Which uh, lent a lot of that stuff to the milk, which ultimately lent a lot of it to the cheese, which ultimately dyed it orange. And in the, in the winter months, they were eating hay, which made kind of for paler, wan-looking cheese. It might yeah. have tasted as good, but people tended to prefer orange cheese. Uh, it just They just thought it was better. So over time, people said, well, we're just going to start dyeing all of our cheese orange. And that's where it came from. And to this day, apparently, it's just an open secret that among cheesemakers, you dye your cheese orange if you're making an orange cheese. Fact of the show. Yes. Beta carotene, grass, <laughs> summer, spring. History. So, uh, like we said, uh, those are the, the pressed cheeses, Gruyere, uh, Reggiano. They're all pressed. I love Gruyere. It can be cooked or uncooked. Cheddar is uncooked, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But it's, So if you take the curds and you, you just press them, and that's 
uncooked pressed, obviously enough. If yeah. you cook the curds and then press them, that's cooked pressed, and that's like Gruyere, Gouda. Yeah, Parmesan. Yeah. Parmesan, no, excuse Pro, me. Provolone, a pasta filata. <laughs> right? Pasta fazool. Um And then processed cheese, we have to mention. <laughs> we got to work our way down the cheese chain. Yeah. Yeah, processed cheese, technically, again, is not a cheese. Uh, it's a byproduct of the process. It can have cheese scraps, can have whey and cream and water, gums, dyes, other ingredients. You can work your way further down to easy cheese. Yeah. <laughs> cheese whiz, Velveeta. Yes. Uh, you know when a cheese doesn't need to be refrigerated, that it's like, and it comes out of a propellant. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, if, it, if you have <laughs> cheese in a can, that's a big giveaway usually. Sodium citrate, sodium phosphate, calcium phosphate, sorbic acid, sodium alginate, uh, apo, I don't even know how to pronounce this, apocarotenol, annatto. This is, these are all things in easy cheese. Cheese isn't easy, though. So I think that should be your other giveaway. Yeah. Cheese takes time. Yes. It's not easy. Although no. you think it's easy to make. Although there is such a product as easy cheese, I believe. No, that's what I'm saying. That's the stuff in the can. Oh, okay. That you squirt out onto a cracker. So that's easy cheese. That's easy. I mean, that is the brand name. Well, what's the one where the cheese is, it's like in a little plastic tray and the cheese is on one side, the crackers <laughs> are on the other, and there's like that little red plastic spreader? Spreader, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, that's some sort of processed cheese. Okay. Which is technically not cheese. No. Um, so there you go. Those and also, types, right? you can make cheese from pretty much any kind of milk. Like traditionally, you've got cow, goat, sheep. Buffalo? Buffalo. But you can also make camel cheese and horse cheese and moose cheese. And uh, I haven't had any of those. Anything with nipples that's <laughs> lactating, you can go ahead and milk and make cheese from. Even just the little cat, you know? <laughs> yeah, camel cheese. I'm interested to try that. So maybe one day we can make it happen. I don't know if anybody should try to mail that to us, though. Camel cheese in the mail? (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't think so. Um, So speaking of lactating, right? Yeah. Let's talk about how cheese is made, Chuck. Well, Josh, there's a lot of different ways to make cheese, depending on what kind of cheese. Like, it gets very specific, obviously. We can't say that you do this for two hours and age it for this long. Right, right. But there are four main stages, uh which is curdling or coagulating of the milk, uh, shaping of the curds, draining of the curds, uh, salting, <laughs> washing, and seeding, and then maturing. And then we can get more detailed right now. Somewhere in there is the running of the bulls. <laughs> so cheese, or I'm sorry, the milk comes in. It's got to be heated to a specific temperature. Yes, because, again, milk is nothing but curds and whey. Right? And you want to separate these. That's the first step. Yeah, and the way to separate them is to create lactic acid. Milk is chock full of lactose. Oh, yes. But for it to lose it's, sugar, its stability, right? it's a type of sugar. Yeah. yeah. It's a milk sugar. But for that, for milk to lose its, its stability and break into curds, which are globby, uh, semi-solid masses, and whey, which is like basically like milky water, uh, you need to convert the lactose to lactic acid. So apparently lactose, the milk sugar, holds everything together. And to convert it to lactic acid, you introduce bacteria. Yeah, there's a few different ways you can do it. Uh, it could be lemon juice or vinegar. Yeah. Or it can be an actual bacterial culture. And it doesn't take much of this. I saw the uh, Dirty Jobs uh-huh. micro. Uh-huh. I mean, they had, I think it was a 5,000-pound batch of cheese that they were making, this huge vat of milk. And uh, he added what looked like about the size of this mug 
of bacteria mm-hmm. culture to it. Yeah. So it goes a long way. Well, there's a lot to them. They're there's very a whole, small. whole lot going on there. Yeah. So um, if you do use bacteria, you're probably going to use uh, either a thermophilic, which is a heat-loving bacteria, or a mesophilic, which is like a kind of a warm, tepid um, temperature bacteria, right. right? But either way, they're going to go in there and they're going to go to town on the lactose and convert as a byproduct lactic acid, right? So That's then right. all of a sudden you have curdled milk. That's step one done. Step two is where that legend about that shepherd comes in. Yeah, with rennet. Yes. Renneting. Yes. Renetation. I don't know if that's a word. What is rennet? Rennet is uh, enzymes, are enzymes from the stomach lining of, of the cow or a sheep or a goat. Well, a young one. A kid. Yeah. If you will. Or a calf. Well, you wouldn't want just some old cow's stomach lining anyway. Well, it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not kidding. necessarily there anyway. The whole reason that this enzyme is in there is so a young cow can break down mother's milk yeah. and, um, digest it. Exactly. So when you add it to milk, Josh, mm-hmm. it makes the casein into curds. And casein is one of the proteins of milk and whey is the other one. Gotcha. Gotcha? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it is casein, so look that up. Well, there's other types of rennet too, actually. There's vegetable rennet. Everything from like sunflowers and ivy to papaya and mallow. But I don't know if the taste is the same. I guess it is. No, I'm sure it's not the same. And I've also seen that papaya and pineapple doesn't work as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and then if you use one like stinging nettle, stinging nettle works really well, but you have to basically create like a brine that you introduce into the cheese so it affects the flavor so you can only use it for certain kinds of cheese. But... Yes, if you are a vegetarian, there is such a thing as vegetarian cheese out there. And if you're not a vegetarian, a lot of them. there is calf's stomach in your cheese. Yum. But just a tiny <laughs> bit. Apparently, a um, a thumbnail full is like the, the rule of thumb. Excuse the pun. <laughs> so uh, the co- coagulation period, it depends on what kind of cheese you're making. But sometimes it's as little as 30 minutes. Sometimes it's as much as 36 hours. But it sets. It's like chocolate mousse, you know? Mm, it's It looks set, but it's sort of separate underneath. Like the top is solid. Right. And then you've got the way underneath. But if you apparently, well, there's plenty of way still left in the stuff that's set, too. But I, I guess if you stick your finger in there, this is what I've read. If you stick your finger in there and it comes out clean, clean. yeah, then it's set. It's like a pumpkin pie. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Except you don't want to eat your finger. No. Um, so when you've got this thing set, you cut it with a thing called a harp, which is a, with a curd cutting knife. Yeah, it looks sort of like a, I a guess there's harp. different ones, but it's, I think they, a lot of them are made out of fishing line. Yeah. And so you're just, yeah, like a harp or guitar strings, you're just kind of gently passing it through, right. breaking it up. And you're cutting it usually into like little cubes, half-inch cubes, that kind of thing. And that alone releases the whey. Yeah. Right? So you drain the whey off until you have just the curds. And then you cut, you either use large curds, smaller curds. You may cut the curds up some more. You may use them as they are right then. I think for mozzarella, that's about it. Yeah, you want to keep the curds separate, though. Like, curds want to join back together. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's a, I mean, uh, maybe they have machines, but it's smaller dairies. You have, like, six or eight people in there just churning the stuff up with their hands between their fingers. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah. And that's the hardest part, I think. Yeah. So um, you got that. You got the curds separated from the whey. Um, you're getting more and more whey out. And then... You might cook the curds if it's a cooked um, type of cheese, right. like cooked pressed, like Gouda. 
Um, you might just start mashing them together if it's cheddar. Um, and then that stuff, the bacteria for cheeses like Stilton or Roquefort or whatever, the, the bacteria that you used as a starter starts to come into play. Yeah. Because now it's done being cooked, it's done being heated or warmed, and the bacteria is going to start to thrive because you're, you're giving it a temperature. Um, you're putting in a climate, I should say. That it loves. Where bacteria loves. Like cheese is, like when you first make cheese, it's not very tasty. It's kind of rubbery. You need to, if it is a ripened cheese, you need to let it ripen. And ripening is basically the further conversion of um, lactose to lactic acid by this bacteria over a period of like weeks or months or years. Right. Um, and that gives the cheese its flavor. Uh, it's stink too. <laughs> but that's what that's what gives cheese its flavor is the a- the activation of this bacteria. That's right. Another thing that helps with the flavor and all cheese will have is salt. And salt does a few things. It uh, speeds up the drying process. It enhances the flavor. It helps the rind to form if if you need a rind, and it slows down uh, the microbial growth, which is good. Right. But all all cheese has salt, and it's added at different times too, from what I've seen depending on what kind of cheese you're making. And sometimes it's straight-up salt. Sometimes it's a brine, briny wash. Yeah. So uh, it all depends on what you're doing. Yeah, when they make uh, Roquefort again, um, they, they just take the, the wheel of cheese and rub salt on it, on the outside of it, until uh, yeah. it, all the pores are closed, and then that creates the rind. That's mm-hmm. the beginning of it. Um, so you've got your cheese ripened. You've got it sitting in a cave-like, uh, cave-like environment, right? Yeah, temperature and humidity are very important down to the degree and percentage. Mm-hmm. Very controlled. Yes. So uh, before you stick it in the cave, Chuck, you might want to needle it, depending on what kind of cheese you're making, right? Is it in the mold yet? Yeah. Okay. Yes. It's in the mold. It's that. pressed. Yeah. Uh, if you're needling it, you probably... I don't know if you started to create the rind or not yet. Maybe you you probably would. With needling in particular... Um, Blue vein cheese is your favorite. They really get their kickstart from this mold, this bacteria that um, loves oxygen. So you have to poke holes in the cheese, little tiny holes. This is needling, yeah, and the uh, bring the oxygen to the to the bacteria so they can create the mold. Needling is not a nice thing to do unless you're making cheese. That's true. Or sewing, right. I guess. So what you're doing is actually bringing the oxygen to the mold, so it can turn into that great. Um, blue vein cheese, which is really, you realize it's rotted dairy is what a blue vein cheese is. I know exactly what it is. All right. You don't like it? No, I do. Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure you knew what you were getting into. Oh, I know. So that's... Uh, some of them, I mean, some of the cheeses you can get are hairy moldy. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, 
Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids, because let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Yeah, have you heard of uh, Kasu Marzu? Nah. Okay. Prepare for this, man. Kasu Marzu is made and illegal in Sardinia, Italy. Okay. And it's this type of cheese. It's a uh, sheep's milk cheese, which makes it a pecorino because it's in Italy. That's what they call sheep's milk cheeses. Right. Um, and w- during the cheesemaking process, the cheesemakers, the underground cheesemakers, right. allow this uh, type of fly called a cheese skipper to lay eggs, which become maggots in the cheese. Wow. The maggots crawl through the cheese, eating the milk fat. And... Um, Creating an enzyme that putrefies the cheese, mm-hmm. not just not just stinking it up, molding, <laughs> but putrefying it. Yeah. Now, if you and apparently it's absolutely delicious, you can't necessarily compare it to a taste. Of, I, I've read a couple things on it, and everybody says it's a sensation. It can burn the tongue, right? Wow. It's so acidic. Um, but if you are really to eat uh, kasu marzu the right way, mm-hmm. you eat it with the live maggots on it. And these maggots can jump six inches off of the cheese. So if you can't stomach the idea of eating live maggots or don't want like digestive problems for the rest of your life, right. um, you will put the, a little bit of the cheese that you're going to eat in a paper bag, hold it up tight, and wait for the popping sound of the maggots jumping off the cheese to stop, which means they're all dead. Awesome. Then you can eat the cheese. I would. Would you eat that? Totally. I would too. I would eat it with the dead maggots. I don't. I wouldn't try it. Um, I mean, it's got to taste good. It's not like they're eating something disgusting. I mean, it sounds disgusting, but the yeah. taste disgusting. No, I would. T- I, I would definitely eat it without the maggots. If I had to, if the only way to to try it was with the live maggots, right? I would. I would not be happy about it. I would strongly prefer know, eating it without the maggots. Okay. Yeah. I just want to know. So this Kazu Marzu, man. That In my opinion, really the good. coolest cheese ever created. <laughs> Now, that's just like cool cheese stuff, how to make it, what it is. Types. But if you're asking practicality, guys, Mm -hmm. where's my practicality in my daily cheese life, my cheesy life? Which, by the way, the etymology of that, I looked that up. They think that it's ironic reversal from 19th century British slang when cheesy meant fine and showy. Huh. So they think that's an ironic reversal. I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I think know. some sorority girl just said it, and it caught wildfire. Yeah, it, it seems like one of those kind of yeah words, like cheesy. It, it was just it was sitting there waiting for it to be picked up and used yeah. in that way. Although it did in in the uh, 
1896, apparently, the late 1800s, it meant cheap and inferior as slang in the United States. Huh. Something was cheesy. So and then it, it died for a little while? For like I don't a century? know. Who knows? Huh. Anyway, I was curious about that. So, uh, cutting the cheese, Josh. <laughs> there are ways you should cut the cheese. Okay. I knew you would laugh at that. Uh, it depends on the shape and size. And this is all from cheese.com, by the way. Your cheese resource on the web. Right. Um, you divide the cheese uh, so that you get an equal share of the inside and the outside, if you want to do it properly. Okay. Makes sense. Uh, round cheeses are cut in wedges, like a cake. Yep. Uh, cheese bought in slices should be cut lengthwise, okay, not across. And tall truckles are easier if sliced horizontally. Truckles? Yeah, that's like like a tall barrel cheese. Okay. It's like taller than it is wide. Gotcha. Not like a big wheel. So it's a cylindrical cheese. Yes. That's a truckle. <laughs> uh, matching cheese and wine, there are no hard and fast rules, but generally uh, wider and fresher cheeses... Uh, go with crisper and fruitier wines. Yeah. You're not a big wine guy. No, I am. I, I enjoy wine with cheese. Okay. I, I'm into uh, rosés. That's right. Right now. Uh, smooth, fatty cheese goes well with smooth, uh, slightly wine. O- oily wine. Wine with, like, globs of fat floating <laughs> no, on top. No, oily wine, though. Uh, What's an oily wine? Well, I can't think of one off the top of my head. but An oily wine? Yeah. Huh. No? I've never heard of it. Sweet wine, Josh. Jay's yeah. laughing. <laughs> Contrast with uh, highly acidic cheese. Uh, white wines usually go better than red wines, even though I love my red wine with the cheese. Yeah. Um, dry, fresh wines are ideally suited to soft cheese, goat cheese. Dry white? Dry, uh, fresh red. Oh, okay. Ideally suited to soft cheeses. Gotcha. Uh, you can also match cheese with beer and cider, obviously, and they say to try regional uh, combinations like if a wine is from a region and a cheese is from a region, chances are they probably go well together. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a good rule to follow. So I, I have a piece of advice based on my own experience. There is nothing better you can do for like an hour or a half hour, whatever you can get away with, on like a Saturday afternoon when you have the time, than to go to a place that has like a real live cheese monger. Yeah. Who knows what they're talking about? Oh yeah, and going up to them and saying, "Hey, I really like this um, this kind of block cheese I've been eating for a while, but I'm ready to expand my horizon. So, can you introduce me to some?" And watch their eyes light up. Yeah, they'll they'll be uh, they'll be very happy. They usually, you know, they'll cut you some samples. They'll kind of walk you mm-hmm. through, and um, it's not ridiculously expensive. I mean, when when you look at the per pound price, you're like thirty five bucks, but yeah. you're not buying a pound. You just buy like a quarter of a. Pound usually is about the, lowest, the least you can get. Sure. But it, you're, you still, it lasts quite a while. Um, uh, so I strongly recommend if you're sitting there eating a block of orange cheese right now, go out and it, like introduce yourself to the world of cheese because there are some really awesome cheeses out there. There are many good ones. And when you buy these cheeses, you might bring them home and the next day you found that they're all hard or they're not... Uh, like they were when you bought it, and that's because you didn't store it properly. Yeah. And uh, there are some tips here, Josh, for storage from cheese.com. I could use them. Uh, unpasteurized cheese should be not sliced until it's purchased. So if you see it in a place and it's like sliced up, don't get it because that's wrong. Okay. Uh, keep the cheese in the condition in which it matures. So hard, semi-hard, and semi-soft cheeses 
should be stored in temperatures from about 8 to 13 degrees Celsius. What is that in Fahrenheit? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> There's conversion tables on the web. Okay. <laughs> uh, keep the cheese in wax paper and put it in a loose-fitting food bag because you don't want it to lose humidity, mm-hmm. but you still want to have air. You don't want it to dry out. Gotcha. So you got to keep that balance. Uh, blue cheeses, you should wrap really all over because it'll uh, jump onto other foods in your refrigerator, which you don't want. The mold will. Yeah. And it'll also... Uh, infect the other foods with flavors that you might not want. You don't want blue cheese eggs. No. And you don't want your eggs to smell like your blue cheese. Right. Which makes sense. Uh, you should take the chilled cheeses out of the fridge about an hour to two hours before serving it and uh, wrap soft cheeses loosely. You don't want to wrap it in like plastic wrap really tight. Again, they recommend wax paper and like a loose Ziploc type thing. You got anything else? Uh, I mean, I've got random facts. Monterey Jack comes from David Jack, who lived in Monterey, California. <laughs> Pretty easy. There's, <laughs> and it's, and it's one of only four American Native American cheeses. I think it's Colby, Jack, Brick, and... It's a Native American cheese? Well, Native. Like from Oklahoma? It's not from Europe. Gotcha. Or wherever. Colby, Jack, Colby, Cheddar? Jack, Brick, and Cheddar. Yeah. I think of the four American cheeses. Yeah. And uh, the U.S., guess the number one cheese that we produce in the U.S.? American cheese. Nope. Cheddar cheese. That's number two. Mozzarella. Yep. Probably because of all the pizza. Yep. That would definitely explain all the cheese consumption, too. In Wisconsin, besides their awesome dairy land, they had a bunch of immigrants from uh, Switzerland and Germany and Belgium and France that settled there, so that's kind of why it's the the Swiss in particular. Yeah, uh, created the heart of uh, the cheese trade in Wisconsin. They were doing it for themselves, starting in like the 1830s and uh, or the 1840s. And by the 1870s, they had they were selling outside of the state, so it happened pretty quick. Yeah. The industrious Swiss, they are industrious. Yeah, with their knives and cheese, yeah. they go well together. Yeah, I know. Uh, and finally, Josh. Uh, I would invest some money if you have any left over into craft. If you've got some spare change laying around, because Asia is loving their cheese all of a sudden. Oh yeah, yeah. A continent typically not very cheesy. Not much Asian food has cheese. It's probably due to the rise of the moneyed class in China. Well, it's due to a rise in pizza and cheeseburgers specifically. Yeah, they're loving pizza now, and apparently South Korea is the biggest buyer, and they're like. They've literally doubled and tripled their cheese imports in the past couple of years. So, uh, big cheese eating going on over there now. So, that's it for cheese, I guess. If you want to know more about cheese, there's a really good article on the site. Um, really, honestly, it's a good initial primer to get you ready to go to, you know, really learn how to make it yourself. You can just type plain old cheese, C-H-E-E-S-E, in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which means now it's time for listener mail. Spammy listener mail. That's what I'm calling this. I just heard your spam podcast. I worked at the Hormel Institute for six months after my Ph.D. Uh, You made a brief aside about the smell. Let me tell you something. It is like nothing on earth. Uh, on days that I followed the pigs to work, I would anticipate smelling a very pungent version of newly dead flesh. Then the next day, I would be overwhelmed by the smell of half-cooked meat. It's the most powerful smell, and two years on, I can still smell it. You could not escape it anywhere in the building, even in the back room of the lab. 
Uh, you mentioned the recession boosting the sales. I can attest that was the case. Thankfully, I was living upstream from the factory, though, so my house didn't smell of spam. But large portions of the town do actually smell of spam, particularly on certain production days. Uh, all joking aside, I was in love with Minnesota. I loved living in Austin and its people and would love to live there again in the future. I never made it to the museum where they give away spamples. <laughs> but local restaurants had uh, spam burgers, even though she didn't eat any. So it does stink as bad as you think, Josh. I can imagine it would. Did you see um, the other person who's, who's moved to Hawaii and has been documenting yeah. spam displays? One of the things was macadamia nuts, but spam-flavored macadamia nuts. I'd like to try that, actually. I want to as well. <laughs> yeah, whoever that is, or anyone in Hawaii, if you could send us some spam macadamia nuts. Nice. That would be good. Okay. So that's from Elizabeth, and she is a postdoctoral research associate in the bio department at... UMass Amherst. UMass. Smart lady. That's a Pixies song, right? It is. Yeah. Um, if you want to send Chuck and I a sample of your cheese, especially camel cheese, we want it. <sighs> Email us and ask us where to send it to, right? Or if you have a cheese story, we want to hear it. That's just so wide open. There's got to be something good in there. Oh, yeah. Send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Fill the grill and fire up the party. Get the Weber Sear Wood Pellet Grill. Smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. Go from low and slow on smoke boost mode at 180 degrees all the way to high heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame and food will look as good as it tastes. This grill is hot in 15 minutes and cleanup is easy. You'll cook on two levels at the same time, so you can make enough for everyone. And you can add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert. So get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.